Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18 as we look at the confessions of an IRS agent. This teaching of Jesus, perhaps more than any other, clearly answers the question, how a person can be saved, how a person can know for sure he's going to be in heaven one day. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. The more time we spend reading about other people's problems, the better we tend to feel about ourselves. But that sort of comparison is a slippery slope because none of us can measure up to God's standards. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress explains why you can't receive salvation without first being humble. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome to a brand new week of Bible teaching on Pathway to Victory. Whether you're a parent or a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, all of us bear an enormous burden for the children in our lives. In fact, did you know that a recent national survey revealed that a large majority of parents today, in fact, 73% of them, are somewhat or very concerned with their children's spiritual development? And for good reason. Our kids are growing up in chaotic and confusing times. Well, for that reason, I'm intent on equipping families with tools that will help them instill godly virtues in their children, such as my brand new children's book called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. In this fully illustrated children's book, I share 10 easy Bible lessons for children that provide a foundation for faith that will endure the test of time. And a copy of my new children's book is yours when you give a generous gift toward the matching challenge. Let me make sure that you understand exactly what this wonderful matching challenge means. Right now, when you give a generous gift of, say, $100, a group of friends will match it, making it a $200 gift. Your gift of $500 becomes $1,000. A $10,000 gift would become $20,000. You choose the amount, and it will have twice the impact because of this matching challenge. Plus, when you give, this entire you to request my book for your family called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. I'll say more about these opportunities later on, but right now, let's turn our attention to the study of God's Word. All this month, we're looking at some of the favorite stories from Jesus. Today, we're in Luke chapter 8. I titled my message, Confessions of an IRS Agent. I see Bonnie McLeod up there. And uh, Bonnie's husband, Carlos, was one of my best friends and encouragers. He was a member of this church, and he is in heaven right now. Many of you knew Carlos McLeod. And uh, I always loved a story that Carlos told. It was about the snake that went to the optometrist for a pair of glasses. And uh, the optometrist said, what do you mean a pair of glasses? You don't have ears on which to hang them, and your eyes are in the wrong place. Why not try some contact lenses? So the snake said, okay, we'll try contacts. About three weeks later, the snake comes back to the optometrist. The optometrist says, well, how are you doing? The snake says, well, I can see perfectly, but I'm all depressed. Well, why are you depressed, the optometrist asked. The snake said, because I've just discovered for the last three years, I've been living with a water hose. Uh, (laughs) 
You know, clear vision can be painful sometimes, especially when it comes to seeing ourselves as God sees us. And yet, seeing ourselves clearly the way God sees us is the first step to receiving God's gift of forgiveness. That's the point of the parable we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18 as we look at the confessions of an IRS agent. It's the parable found in Luke chapter 18. And I think this parable, this teaching of Jesus, perhaps more than any other, clearly answers the question, how a person can be saved. How a person can know for sure he's going to be in heaven one day. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 9. Now, Jesus at the beginning tells the purpose of this parable. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to theorize. The purpose of the parable is very clear, beginning in verse 9. Luke says, and Jesus also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This parable was directed toward a specific group of people, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in their inherent goodness rather than in God's unconditional grace to be saved. And they represent many people today. There are many people out there, if you ask them, why do you think you're going to be in heaven one day? And by the way, most people think they're going to heaven, surveys show. But if you drill down and ask them why, they'll point to something within themselves. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. I do the best I can. I love other people. I may not be perfect, but I'm as good as most people. Well, that was the Pharisees. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And not only that, it says they also viewed others with the contempt. I mean, after all, what's the use of thinking highly of yourself if you can't think lowly of other people? And that was the Pharisees. They had this inflated view of themselves. And you see it beginning in verse 10. Jesus tells us that there are two players in this parable. Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Now, in selecting these two characters, Jesus could not have chosen two people more at the opposite end of the religious spectrum in Israel. If Jesus were telling this story to us today, he might say, two people went to church to pray, a preacher and a prostitute. That was the difference in the Jewish mind between the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. Let's look first of all at the character, the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood and was praying. Now, whenever we hear the word Pharisees, I can almost hear the audience hissing, the Pharisees. We think of them as villainous characters. Nobody could be more evil in our mind than the Pharisees. Jesus' audience did not take it that way. You see, in Israel, the Pharisees represented the most holy group of the Jews. They were people who were intent not on breaking God's law, but on keeping God's law. They supposedly loved God. They obeyed God, at least outwardly. There were only 3,000 of them in Israel. They were a very holy group of people. The Pharisee, he came to the temple, and the Bible said he stood as he prayed. I've heard preachers and teachers teach from this passage and say, oh, that's the problem. Instead of kneeling before God, he stood. That's not the problem. 
Jews stood to pray in Jesus' day. People stand to pray today. There's nothing wrong with standing. The problem with this Pharisee was not his posture in praying, but his attitude in praying. I love the phrase that Jesus adds, he stood praying thus to himself. His prayer didn't make it out of the temple. And you can see why when you look at the content of this prayer. He said, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer standing beside me. Instead, I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. In this short prayer, the word I is used five times. I am not like other people. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He wasn't praying to God. He was praying to himself. He was a holy man, at least in his own eyes. But what is so clear that is missing from this prayer, something that even a child could recognize is, nowhere in this prayer is there any sense of repentance. No seeking God's forgiveness. No supplication for God to do something in his life. It was I, I, I. Now I want you to contrast him to the second character, the tax gatherer. Verse 13, but the tax gatherer standing some distance away. Again, you couldn't pick anybody any lower on the religious ladder than the tax gatherer. He ranked right down there in Jewish society with televangelists and used chariot salesmen. I mean, people hated tax gatherers. And when you understand something about them, you can understand why. See, the tax gatherers mostly were fellow Jews. They were Jews who got the right to collect taxes on the behalf of the Roman government. And so these tax gatherers were hated for two reasons. First of all, they were fellow Jews who were helping support the oppressive Roman government. And not only that, they were guilty of cheating people out of their money. Two distinct people, a Pharisee who loves and obeys God, and a tax gatherer who is a traitor to his people, and not only that, cheats his own people. This man was just as much of a sinner as the Pharisee was. The difference was in their attitude toward their need. Notice the prayer. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away, verse 13, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible God be merciful to me, the sinner. But in this prayer, I want you to notice two essential components. First of all, he expressed sorrow for his sin. God be merciful to me, the sinner. We don't know what drove him into the temple to pray that day out of desperation. By the way, you see that desperation in the way he placed himself. When the Pharisee came into the temple, he stood as near to the Holy of Holies as he possibly could without being struck dead. Not this tax gatherer. This tax gatherer, it says, verse 13, stood some distance away. He didn't feel worthy to come into the presence of God. And by the way, that's a principle you'll find in your own life. The closer you get to God, 
the more unworthy you feel before God. When you come into a realization of the holiness of God, you realize what a distance there is between you and God. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is a week I doubt I will ever, ever forget. Wednesday afternoon at 4 o'clock, a young man came to see me. He and his wife had just joined our church. They'd been in our contemporary service, and they joined our church at the end of April, and he wanted to come and visit with me. And so we sat down to talk, and he shared with me about the struggles any 28-year-old man would have about trying to be a better father, a better husband. But then he said, Pastor, the real reason I wanted to come and talk to you was my wife and I really want to get involved in the church. We want to do everything, and we're trying to figure out where we could best use our gifts for the Lord. And so we talked about all of that. And then he said, the second thing I want to ask you about is this. I just really want to find a way to give everything I have to the Lord. I want to give it all to him, and I want to know how you do that. And so I said, well, you know, that is so admirable and noble. I said, but you also have a responsibility to to take care of your family, your wife and your two-year-old and one-year-old child. And and there's a balance there, and you just have to find that balance. We prayed together, and he left my office, went downstairs to the ground level to the Lifeway store and purchased a card and a gift certificate to Lifeway. And he left it with Carolyn, and I opened it later that evening, and it said, Dear Pastor, Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today. And I want you to know I'm praying for you and the church. He went back home that evening, played with his two children a little while, and then went back to his office to finish up some work along with his partner. At about 12.52 a.m. Thursday morning, this young man, Matthew Butler, left that Garland recording studio with his friend, Steve Swan. And as you read in the paper, they were both brutally murdered. I'll never forget something Matthew said a few hours before he died when we were meeting together. We were talking about the various places that he could serve in the church, and I knew he had an interest in music and singing. I said, well, why don't you join our contemporary praise team and and sing at 9.30 or our new service at 11? He said, no, Pastor, I want to be in the background. I don't want to be up front singing yet because I still have some work I need to do on my relationship with God. I thought to myself, work? Here you come into my office wanting to be a better Christian husband and father, You're wanting to serve the Lord in His church. You're ready to give everything you have to Christ. How could you be in any better position in your relationship with God? But you see, that's the test. The closer you get to God, the more unworthy you feel before God. That was this tax gatherer. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. He expressed sorrow for his sin, but listen to me. It's possible to be sorry for your sin without ever being saved from your sin. And that's the second important component of this prayer. He secondly requested God's mercy to cover his sin. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful. He was saying, Lord, Cover over my sin. I am not capable of atoning for covering my guilt. 
you're going to have to do that for me. He requested God's mercy to cover his sin. Two men who approached God in two very different ways. One, the Pharisee who came to God on the basis of his own inherent goodness. The other who came on the basis of God's grace. Now, had Jesus stopped the story right here and given a pop quiz to his audience and said, okay, you've heard the story about two men who went to pray, which one left forgiven? The Pharisee would have won hands down. No question in Jesus' audience's mind. Why, you've got a Pharisee who does all of these good things, loves God, keeps the law, and then you've got this tax gatherer who's done who knows what that makes him so desperate And he thinks one little prayer is going to get rid of his sin? Why, that's ridiculous. Obviously, the Pharisee is the one who's forgiven. Jesus dumbfounds them in verse 14. When he turns their expectations upside down, he says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax gatherer, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. You see, I'm just imagining this, but... I think when the Pharisee left the temple and went back to his house, I think he felt pretty good about himself. Nothing like some quality time spent with the Lord, he probably said. And the tax gatherer? I'm just imagining he felt as badly about himself after he left the temple as when he went into the temple. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, in the final analysis, it really doesn't matter what we think about our relationship with God. It's what God thinks about his relationship with us. That's what matters. And the Bible says that it is the tax gatherer who went down to his house from the temple justified. When this tax gatherer simply expressed sorrow for his sin and requested a covering for his sin, in the great courtroom of heaven, God hammered down the gavel and said, not guilty, not guilty. And it's the same with us. The only way in God's eyes we will ever be forgiven is by requesting God's mercy, the blood of his son, to atone for our sins. And then Jesus adds this well-known phrase in verse 14, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. That is, the person who, like the Pharisee, engages in self-congratulations before God, who is trusting in his own relative goodness for salvation, one day, when he stands before the judgment of God, he's going to be humbled. As he realizes that no matter how good he was, it wasn't good enough to enter into heaven. On the other hand, the person who humbles himself in this life, who says, God, I am sorry for my sin. I request the grace of Jesus to cover over my sin. One day, he will be exalted. In his book, The Grace and Truth Paradox, Randy Alcorn writes, Wesley Allen Dodd tortured, molested, and murdered three boys in Vancouver, Washington, 15 miles from our home. Wesley Dodd was scheduled to be hanged, the first U.S. hanging in three decades, shortly after midnight, January the 4th, 1993. At dinner that evening, both of our daughters, then 11 and 13, prayed earnestly that Wesley Dodd would repent and place his faith in Christ, 
before he died. I agreed with their prayer, but only because I knew I should. I stayed up and watched. Reporters from all over the country crowded around the prison. Twelve media representatives were first-hand witnesses to the execution. When they emerged 30 minutes after Wesley Dodd died, they recounted the experience. One of them read Dodd's last words. I had thought there was no hope and no peace, but I was wrong. I have found hope and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Gasps and groans erupted from the gallery. The anger was palpable. How dares someone who has done anything so terrible say that he has found hope and peace in Jesus? Did he really think God would let him into heaven after what he had done? Shut up and go to hell, you child killer. You won't get off so easily. The idea of God's offering grace to Wesley Dodd was utterly offensive. And yet, didn't Jesus die for Dodd's sins just as he did for mine? No sin is bigger than the Savior. Grace is literally not of this world. I struggled with the idea of God saving Wesley Dodd only because I thought too much of myself and too little of my Lord. I'd imagined that the distance between Wesley Dodd and me was as the difference between the South and the North Poles. But when you consider God's viewpoint from light years away, that distance is negligible. In my standing before a holy God apart from Christ, I am Wesley Dodd. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that in God's eyes you are just as guilty as someone who rapes, tortures, and murders a small child? Do you believe in God's evaluation that you are just as deserving of hell as those three men this week who murdered Matthew Butler and Steve Swan. Until you are willing to accept that evaluation of yourself, you will never be ready to accept God's gift of forgiveness. Lord, be merciful to me the sinner. Aren't you glad we serve a God who's willing to pardon you and me? His grace and mercy surpass our comprehension. We can hardly fathom the depth of God's unconditional love and forgiveness. And at Pathway to Victory, we never tire of proclaiming the greatest story ever told. The gospel is the centerpiece of this ministry. And when you partner with us, you're impacting lives all across the country. I'm reminded of a letter I received from Mona who said, Pastor Jeffress, I've been struggling with a bad decision that has held me back for so many years. But when I heard you say there is hope and that God is always giving us a second chance, it was just what I needed to hear. Please, Pastor Jeffress, never quit sharing God's love for all of us. Wamona, well, I promise to keep sharing the truth of God's love and mercy. And it's our generous listening family who allow me to do so without restraint. 
Remember that right now, your generous investment in Pathway to Victory has twice the impact because of the Gospel Advance Matching Challenge that's active right now. Whatever amount you choose to give between now and July 4th will be automatically matched and doubled because of this $500,000 bequest. So, don't let this opportunity slip by without giving generously to Pathway to Victory. And when you do so, I'll be sure to say thanks by providing my new children's book called Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. My book will engage the child in your life with 10 of Jesus' favorite stories and will teach them life-changing lessons. Now, here's David with all the details. Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. When you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, we'd like to say thanks by sending you the brand new illustrated children's book, Jesus' Favorite Stories for Kids. To make your request, call 866-999-2965, or even easier, simply go online to ptv.org. Now, when your gift is $75 or more, you'll also receive the complete unedited CD and DVD teaching sets for our current series called The Parables, Jesus' Favorite Stories. Remember, your gift right now will be doubled in impact through our Gospel Advance Matching Challenge. So be sure to get in touch right away. Call 866-999-2965 or visit ptv.org. You can also send your donation by mail. Here's the mailing address, P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. Want to make an impact for God's kingdom? Join us again next time for a lesson on how to become salty saints here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.